0: It's a pleasure to be here at the Owaspa campus this morning. Pastor Chris is at the Calvary campus holding down the fort over there, and and I get to be with you guys this morning. Uh, If you do have your word, which I hope you do, uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 5, because that's where we're going to be um, this morning. And we're continuing our series that's been titled The Walk. And and this is another beautiful step in that series. Last week we looked at the whole concept of of being a part of the body. What does it mean to be part of the body? one of the things that i told the calvary campus was that a body that's missing any one of its members is by definition or by nature deformed uh, and we have in our culture such a temptation to privatize all sorts of things, including our faith, as if we can say, "As long as I have a relationship with God, you know." People say, "Me and me and God, me and me and Jesus, we're good. I don't need the church. I don't need anything else. I don't need any formal religion. Me and God, we're good." And you have this very privatized faith. Yet, what we see in the New Testament is clearly and explicitly that we need one another and we need biblical community. So that's that's something that we we touched on last week. And this week we continue. A similar concept of one of the essentials of Christianity is walking by the Spirit. And so this morning we're going to unpack that idea of what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. And so the major doctrine that I want to defend this morning is the fruit of the Spirit kills sin. That's pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty much to the point, right? The fruit of the Spirit kills sin. And I want to unpack that. I believe that that is intrinsically here in this passage um, as we get going this morning. But I want to also have you thinking about this statement. I believe it's true. And I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Our lifestyle reveals our true spiritual condition. Our lifestyle reveals our true spiritual condition. And we'll unpack a similar idea this morning. But it's, it's, it's very evident that the way that we walk is going to be a very clear demonstration of our spiritual condition. And so as we're encouraged to walk by the Spirit so as to not gratify the desires of the flesh, our lifestyle will be a very much a testimony to the condition of our hearts and where we are spiritually. Um, and so that's going to be something I want you to have in your heart and in your mind. But as we get going this morning, we'll go right away and 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 kick off here into uh, and, and getting into our scriptures. But just so you kind of know where we're headed, um, I'm going to make three stops. We're going to talk about this idea that Paul opens with, that is this big warning, and it's, it's going to sting us a little bit. So we're going to talk about being warned. We're going to look at what grows out of truth true Christianity. And finally, we will ask this question, how to get life from death. So be warned what grows out of true Christianity and how to get life from death. So if you will, stand with me and we will get right into our text this morning. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, and then we will read all the way through 25. It says this, now the works of the flesh Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passage and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. And so when we start with this idea of, of being warned, it's, it's, it's really an interesting thing to kind of unpack. Before we do, I want to put us into a little bit of context here. So this is the book of Galatians uh, written to the church in Galatia, and then Paul wrote this. It's epistle. The genre is epistle. And what this was meant for was it was meant for encouraging and equipping the first century church. For the first century audience, uh, there, this had a particular meaning, right? But as we look at all the epistles, we recognize that they also have meaning and application for us today. We don't just say, oh, those only had meaning for them back there in the first century. We say that this has meaning for us as the church today as well. And so as we read these, there's some things that are in here that we're kind of like, I don't know, does this really apply to me? Well, we've with every passage of Scripture, we've got to ask, what did it mean in the original context? But we also have to look for some theological principles in which this absolutely will apply to us. And I believe that this passage is one of those that you can't just dismiss as historical and culturally bound and only applied to the first century church. This is the essentials of Christian living. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? So we're going to unpack that idea this morning. But what's interesting, if we actually back up a little bit to put ourselves in a little bit better context, we should start in verse 16, actually. So let's back up real quick, and I want to read that. He says, But I say... Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then he goes on to list these things that are uh, explicitly things that he recognizes the works of the flesh uh, entail. But this idea... In verse twenty-one, that stings us a little bit. I want to spend some time on. He says, "I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." Now, when it says that those who do, that word "do" actually means a little bit bigger context here, a little bit bigger uh, semantic range, if you will. It's just not someone who does something once, but it's really emphasizing this consistent, habitual pattern. So what we have to look at is that this is something that stings us quite a bit, doesn't it? It's really easy to look at this and say, well, if I don't perform to some standard, then I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God. If I commit some specific sin, then I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying and what he is setting up is a tension that ought to sting us. He's saying literally that if your practice, if your habitual consistent pattern of your life is these types of things which are explicitly set against the Spirit. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is not that you earn salvation by works. It is not that you have to reach some sort of moral perfection from which then you are merited salvation. He's simply saying, here's the facts. Somebody who is consistently marked by these things, who their pattern, their habitual consistent pattern is these things, you are not born of the Spirit. And so we ask, okay, well, what does, that, what does that look like? Does that mean any one of these specific sins? No, it doesn't mean any one of these specific sins. If you fall into any one of these specific sins, that's not proof that you're not saved. That's not the point. Because as you can look through this list, and if you're anything like me, you look through some of these and you say, yep, I can relate. Some of them you look at and you're like, I don't, I don't relate to that at all, like sorcery. I don't know about you, but I have no temptation to do sorcery. That may be something you're struggling with. But for me, I have, there's not a day that I wake up and I'm like, Lord, give me the strength to to avoid sorcery. Like, that's not something. But you look through this list and there's a lot of other things that I bet you can relate to. And there's a lot of things that I can relate to and I can look at. And here's the truth of the matter. That there, it's not about any one of these things. Maybe you fall into sexual immorality. Does that then therefore prove that you are not born of God? Does that then therefore prove that you are not one who will inherit the kingdom? No, that's not proof and that's not what Paul's point is. But his point is one that stands in which one that ought to convict us and challenge us. That if our consistent habitual pattern is these things then we demonstrate with consistency that we are not alive by the Spirit, that we are not born of God, and that we have no part in the kingdom of God. I believe that's the point. It is not whether or not you've ever fallen into these, or if you ever will fall into any one of these. It is whether or not you're marked by a consistent pattern. And as I argued earlier, I believe that our lifestyle reveals the true nature and true spiritual condition of what's inside of our hearts. And we'll unpack that a little bit more, but here's the thing. Our outward conduct is something that we should be aware of. It is something that we should be looking at. Um, and, and when we actually recognize that when we are born of God, what happens is that God gives us the power to have victory over sins. And I want to unpack that here in just a second. But here's the beauty. Is that every one of us ought to see gradual growth in the fruit of the Spirit. We should see gradual growth in holiness. We should see progress towards this ideal state. Why? Because God is doing something inside of us. And what literally Paul is saying when he warns us, he is warning us that there is some recognition here between what we habitually practice and the type of person we are becoming. Think, of, think, think for a second. Think of somebody who's, who's absolutely consumed with something. Think of somebody who can't think of anything else but these sins in their life. And think of that person, and they may say to you, they may say to you, I believe in Jesus, but everything in their life is marked by absolutely works of the flesh. What would you say to them? Would you not have some pause? Would you not feel that, man, man, that's not true Christianity. That's not what God has designed for us to live in, walk with the Spirit is to sit there and say every bit of my life is consumed by being enslaved to sin and to simply only have some sort of a verbal commitment that our mouths say one thing but our lives say another. And so we should be warned by what the Apostle Paul lays out here is because there is this beautiful tension here that the gospel is, is, is based on this foundational principle that we were not safe because we had achieved some status of morality. It's not true. We were safe because we were sinners. And the exact thing that qualified for us for the mercy of God was the fact that we were Sinners. That we were unrighteous. And so when God looked out of everyone in the world and he says, he says, here's, here's what I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose the people who are broken, who are ungodly, and save them. To do what? To make them godly. He takes our heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. He takes and writes his precepts on our hearts. So, so that what? So that we can establish a new pattern according to our new nature. Do you get that? There should be a new pattern, new habits, new consistency. What if you define the overall trajectory of your life? Where is it headed? Is it headed more towards God-likeness, Christ-likeness? Or are you simply living under the law of the flesh? You have to ask consistently, is my new nature in Christ consistent with this progress? And I'm not here to define exactly what that looks like. That's going to look different for each and every one of us. It's going to look different for every one of us, every step. And there will be days where you wake up and you say, I don't want to be this person anymore. I don't want to struggle with this sin anymore. Because you're struggling with that sin is not proof that you're not saved. I would argue that's actually a good thing. That your conscience isn't seared, but the the holy God who lives inside of you is continuing the good work that he began. Continuing to purify you to greater and greater holiness. So let us be consistent with this idea that when God does something to us, he is going to continue that good work. But if there is no evidence of this, if we are completely enslaved to sin, and our consistent practice and habitual patterns demonstrate only works of the flesh, Paul says it right here. He says, I warn you. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to move off this point, but I want to make sure that you get this. When you read verses like this that are not fun, do not quickly dismiss them. Let them burn you up. Let them warn you as they're intended to do. But let's move on to our next stop on this journey here. I want to answer this question. What grows out of true Christianity? Well, I think that spiritual fruit opposed to works of the flesh, that's what grows out of true Christianity. Because the transforming work of the, of the spirit is what produces growth in the fruit. So what happens is that the Holy Spirit gets inside of us, and this is a beautiful story of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit gets inside of us and he changes our heart and he changes our desires so that we can truly see that there is growth in fruit. There's there's growth in this fruit, but when we talk about this fruit, what we have to look at is that this fruit is produced from being tied to Christ. And being tied to Christ, the fruit that that produces is obedience. So what are we talking about obedience here? Well, when we look at the fruit of the Spirit specifically and in this passage, I think it's really worth noting that the fruit of the Spirit is not divisible, rather collective. That means that when we look at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those good elements, they're not individual fruits. Do you see that the word says fruit of the Spirit? It doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. Here's the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit collectively, comprised of several different elements. Now, there is, there is something to be seen here that we can look and, and, and ask ourselves how we're doing in each of these individually. There's no problem with that. But holistically, we must recognize that these, the fruit of the Spirit is not divisible as if we can compartmentalize it and divide it up. But we can't have like, joy or kindness on their own and leave self-control over there by itself. The fruit of the Spirit is collective. But I want to answer this very important question. I'm going to put it on the screen because it really goes to the point of the major doctrine I'm trying to defend, that the fruit of the Spirit kills sin. Well, here's the question. How do we mortify the works of the flesh? Because what Paul outlines, starting in verse 19, are the works of the flesh. And every one of us can look at these and this list and say we relate with some of them at least. So then the question for the believer is, how do I mortify? Mortify is just an old word for how do I kill it? How do I kill the works of the flesh? Well, I believe the answer is we walk according to the Spirit. It's impossible to walk according to the flesh at the exact same time that you're walking according to the Spirit. If we are submitted to the Spirit and walking with the Spirit, we are not gratifying the desires of the flesh. And that's exactly what Paul set up when he says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I'm not saying that. He's saying that. If you do this, then this. If I do what? If I walk by the Spirit, then what? I will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So if we want to know how to mortify sin, if we want to know how to, to kill the works of the flesh, we've got to start by looking at what it means to walk according to the Spirit. Because I believe what grows out of true Christianity is the enablement, the ability to walk according to the Spirit. And, and when we do this, we strive and desire to serve and love God through growing in and expressing the fruit of the Spirit. But you know what? This isn't just on the Holy Spirit to do this work in us. It's our responsibility as well. There's an imperative here. Look in verse 16. Look at that verb. But I say, walk by the Spirit. So there's a passive element to this. And that passive element is that the Holy Spirit does something in you. He changes your heart. Gives you a new nature. But then here's the human responsibility. We are to walk according to that new nature. Walk according to the Spirit. Well, What does that mean? It means that we recognize the places in which we are most tempted and we ask for grace there. And we avoid those temptations, we avoid those opportunities because we're striving to obey and please God. Walking is a verb. Walking has intention. And so the human responsibility is to walk according to the Spirit. But the beauty is that out of true Christianity grows the even ability to do that because unless you're regenerated, unless you're born again of the Spirit, you can't do it. You can't walk according to the Spirit if you're not born of the Spirit. You can demonstrate superficial expressions of the fruit of the Spirit, but you can't genuinely walk according to the Spirit if you're not born of the Spirit. So what, what grows out of true Christianity is the ability to actually walk according to the Spirit. And, and when we ask this question, how do we mortify the works of the flesh? Well, we say walk according to the Spirit. Well, explicitly, what's really beautiful is if you look at each of these elements of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those, they actually treat the works of the flesh. They're like an antidote. It's like if you get bit by a snake, you need some medicine to treat that. Well, the works of the flesh have an antidote, and I believe that those, those are uh, comprised in the fruit of the Spirit. So, let's look at a couple of these. Um, let's, let's, let's pick out one of the uh, actual, let's say the vices here uh, in the list of the works of the flesh. You know, um, let's, let's talk about, uh, you know, maybe you've got jealousy. Maybe there's some strife or jealousy. Well, what's, what's a good antidote to that? Well, Obviously, love is going to be a good antidote to that, isn't it? Whenever you look at someone and you're jealous of them, what you're actually saying is that I deserve what they have. They don't deserve it. I, ha- I should. I'm entitled to that. And there's this strife. But if you truly love somebody, you want their best. You want the best for them. You celebrate with them. But when you don't actually love them and you're opposed to them, you're jealous of them. They're jealous of something they have that you think you're qualified to have. You're entitled to have. They shouldn't have it. I should. But an antidote to that is love. And so if, we've, if we experience jealousy and strife, we should be praying that God would grow up in us genuine love for one another. Because that's an antidote to the work of the flesh. I don't have time to go through each and every one of these, but look about uh, joy. When we're, when we're practicing some of these things like sexual immorality, You know, a lot of times what we do is we take something that's good and from God and we abuse it. We either pursue it in the wrong time, the wrong amount, or for the wrong reason. Sex is a good thing. Sex is invented by God. There's nothing wrong with sex, but in the right context. But you know what we do sometimes is we strive to get true joy from these good things in bad ways. And so when we're struggling to find true joy by filling our lives with all of these different things in, appropriate, in, in inappropriate ways, what we should be praying for is that God give us true joy and contentment and peace in Him. Find our self-worth and our value in who our Creator has designed us to be in that loving relationship we have with Him. Because true joy cannot exist apart from being born of the Spirit. Maybe it's patience, or kindness. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Southern California for work, and I uh, went to Starbucks. In in which I always do, and even the baristas down there know me by name. And uh, I went in, and I'm ordering my drink, and then this lady's there, and she's at the counter, and she puts her drink up on the counter, and she's just mad. And she goes, who made this? And she's, de- she's demanding that it get made again. And so the barista says, oh, we'll, we'll make it for you again. And she's like, well, you better do it right this time. And uh, she's like, okay, well, what's wrong with it? She's like, it doesn't have enough syrup in it. And she goes, okay. She goes, well, how, how, how would you like it made? And she goes, like you normally do. You usually, this is the first time you get it wrong and you, you usually make it right. I want you to make it right. Like, you know how. And everyone in the store at this point's like, whoa, this lady, this is interesting, right? And she keeps going. So then the manager, store manager overhears And she says, she goes, well, ma'am, well, maybe what we can do is we can give you the syrup and you can add however much you would like to. And she goes, no, I want you to make it and you step out of it. You're not in this. And everyone's like, whoa. She just goes, I want the store number. I want your name for getting into this. I want your name. Everyone's messing it up and everyone's going to get told on. And all the other customers are sitting there like, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, she's going to have a great day. She's going to have a great day. But I'm sitting there thinking like she had no patience. (laughs) She had no kindness. It was all about her. And even the people stepping in trying to help, she didn't have time for them. But to me, when I look at these types of things, when I'm, when I'm impatient, when I'm, when I'm self-absorbed, the antidote to that is to, is to ask for more peace, to ask for kindness, to ask for the ability to treat other people with respect, gentleness, all these others. Obviously, faithfulness treats a lot of things, gentleness. But I think the last one is a pretty good summary. Self-control you know in our culture, self-control is something that we just do not practice well. We live in a culture of instant gratification. And to delay gratification is an incredible discipline that is rare. When you want something, you usually want it now. Right? We are in that. What do we want? We want this. When do we want it? Now. Right now. And so self-control, when we look at any sin, and I'm not just saying specifically these works of the law that are explicitly listed here, any work of the law in your life, or any work of the flesh, I should say, in your life, when you look at this, genuinely, when you express that in sinful behavior, it is absolutely a failure on your part to practice or demonstrate self-control. If you had self-control, you would stay out of a lot of the things you get into. If I had self-control, I would stay out of the things I get into that I shouldn't be into. And so when we're looking at these things, the work of the flesh I'm arguing that when we want to know how to mortify, how to kill the works of the flesh, we should pray for an increase in the fruit of the Spirit because they are antidotes to the work of the flesh. Self-control is a big one. Uh, I I am uh, reminded of John MacArthur and his strategy, and I'm not saying this is for everyone, but I got a kick out of it, and I definitely won't forget it, so I'm going to share it with you. He says he likes to train himself up in self-control, and one of the things that he likes to do is he likes to um, want something really bad and then deny himself. So he says, so like if I'm at a restaurant and I see a chocolate pie and I really want that chocolate pie, I build it up in my heart that I want that, oh, how good that chocolate pie would be, and then I order an ice water. I deny myself. And he says, because I get in the practice of denying myself. I get in the practice of, of not giving myself what I want all of the time. And I personally have found that there's great benefit in practicing uh, self-control and developing self-control. Now, I I say this um, just because it's something that I do, but it's not necessarily perfectly, you know, something you should do. But to me, I have noticed that there is a relationship, if I'm loose in other areas of my life, then spiritual disciplines are going to be loose as well. So for me... Sundays are my cheat days, which means Sundays when I go to Starbucks, I get to add sugar to my coffee. And I just praise the Lord when I'm slapping those three packs of raw sugar and put it in my coffee. Sundays are the best. I can eat cake. I can eat whatever I want, basically. Yeah, amen. For me, I like to do that because then the rest of the week, I'm denying myself. I'm denying myself. And now I'm not just doing that for spiritual reasons. I'm not trying to say, oh, here, I'm hyper hyper spiritual. I do it for other reasons too because it's really hard to ride the dirt bike uh, when your arms are pumping up because you've been loaded up on sugar all week. That's another reason. I'm going to be honest with you. But I have found that when I am disciplined in other areas of my life, when I'm practicing self-control in other areas of my life, it translates to my spiritual disciplines as well. And, and, and we are a dichotomy. We are both body and spirit. And they interact. You can't divide them. can't divorce them. So what I do in the body has spiritual consequences. And what I'm putting in my spirit and building up my spirit has physical consequences. Does it not? Where does sin start? Does it start in the physical or the spiritual? It starts in the spiritual. It starts in your mind. The metaphysical. And then is expressed through the physical bodily actions. They're joined together. But I want to ask you, is there consistency between your mouth and your life? Because I think sometimes we can claim to be Christians, but that claim can be empty or even harmful. Um, and, And I don't know if you know of anyone or have experienced this before, but you see people who claim to be Christians, but their entire life is completely opposed to the work of the Spirit. And then what are they? They're a harm to others who would look at them and say, so that's what the gospel does? That's what the gospel produces? And remember, I'm not talking about personal self-reformation here. I'm talking about when we profess Christ, are we truly professing Christ both in our walk or is it only stopping with our talk? Because what imperatively here Paul says is, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so we should feel this tension that if we are not walking by the Spirit, we must ask, I mean, is, there, is, there, is there evidence here that, that God is continuing this work that He began in me? Am, am I only demonstrating work of the flesh? I and mean, even on that point, there's the other side, that even if there's any ounce of goodness in us, it's not to our credit, and to take the credit would be offensive to God, because He's the one who gives us any of the good. He gives us even the desire to do good. But here's the point. When you were born of the Spirit, You are enabled to walk according to the Spirit. It isn't as if you obey and walk by the Spirit so that you might be born of the Spirit. You walk and obey because you are born of the Spirit. Never forget that order of operations. So we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions because I think that what grows out of true Christianity is a love for God first. A love for God And so I asked, do you love God? Because when we love God, what follows from that is true admiration. We admire God. And not only do we admire him, but we're devoted to him. And our affections are towards him. Our affections are toward God. We admire God. And we want to also be devoted and obey him. Because I believe this, and I want to put it on the screen. True love for God uniquely belongs to the believer. Grow in it. True love for God uniquely belongs to the believer. The unbeliever cannot love God. You're not born of God. You're an enemy of God. Anyone who loves God desires to please and serve him. And any man who hates God is not born of God. Any man who hates God is not born of God. So I ask this question, do you love God? Or do you hate God and do you wish to continue to hide from him so that you can sin in private? Because you know what, that's usually what happens when we hate God is we don't want anything to do with God. We wanna be as far away from God as possible. And not only that, anyone who resembles God, we see God in them, we wanna be far away from them as well, don't we? It makes us uncomfortable when we hate God to be around those who love and are loved by God. But here's, what's the point? is that I believe that true Christianity, out of that grows first a love for God. And that is what draws us and pushes us to walk according to the Spirit. It's not about trying to earn our salvation. We don't obey God so that we might be loved by God. We obey God because we love God. That is true religion, that we first love God, and then out of that, we obey God. Those, are, those two are tied together. I want to read a little excerpt from Jonathan Edwards, who, uh, his sermon on charity and its fruits, the sum of all virtue is love, he says this, a truly practical and saving faith is light and heat together, or light and love, that which is only speculative is only light without heat, but in that, what it wants, spiritual heat or divine love, it is vain and good for nothing, and he says this, a speculative faith consists only in assent, but in a saving faith are assent and consent together. That faith which only has the assent of the understanding is no better than the devils have. For the devils have faith so far as it can be without love. If all of your faith is summarized in intellectual assent that you agree about some facts about some deity, but you have no love for God, you do not have a saving faith, but you have a speculative faith, as Edward says. Because what happens when we are born again, when we are born of the spirit, is he gives us the ability to love God, who we used to hate. Man, that's beautiful. It's not just I have some cerebral facts about some historical person named Jesus, I love Jesus. And when I talk about and think about walking according to the Spirit, it's because I love God. It's not because I'm trying to earn his love, it's because I love him. Man, that is the beauty of the gospel, is that he changes our hearts, and from that heart change, we're able then to live a life that's pleasing to him. And I want to close with our stop here, addressing this concept of how do you get life from death? And first, I, I believe we cannot have remission of sin without death. First, we get life from the death of Christ. And also, I believe we get spiritual life from regeneration and crucifixion of the flesh. So we die to the world and its fleshly desires. But here's where I want to end. I want to end focusing in on uh, this, this last verse here, uh, 25. And it's a tough verse, but I think it's worth, worth noting. And I put it up on the screen. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What, what, look at the beginning of this. What does he start with? In those who belong to Christ... So what I want to put in your mind and I want to ask you this question is, has Christ taken possession of you? Because if Christ has taken possession of you, you are not your own. And not only that, your flesh, along with its passions and desires, have been crucified. Do you see that? They have been put to death. Why? On account of you being taken over by Christ. Christ taking possession of you. It's not that we reach out and take possession of Christ. It's that he first takes possession of us. And then we respond in accepting him. It's not the other way around. It's not, we get this wrong. It's not that Jesus is saying, I would love, I would love to save you if you would only invite me in. No, what happens is he grabs us. All that the Father has given to the Son. The Son shall lose none of them. But Christ takes possession of us. And when he takes possession of us, as it says here, we see by nature our flesh is crucified along with its passions and desires. I love that. I love that. Because we can rest in Christ taking possession of us which then enables us to walk by the Spirit because that means we are born by the Spirit. Let's close. Let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we have the opportunity to consider our life and that we pray, that, God, that you would check on our Christ-like character and that you would help us grow where we are most weak and suffer the greatest temptation to walk according to the flesh. And may you, Father, continue the work that you began in us. May we grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, demonstrating the fact that Christ has taken possession of us, and thereby we walk according to the Spirit, so as not to satisfy the desires of the flesh. God, help us this week to recognize the beauty of the gospel, that you have saved us even though we are sinners. Yet you have called us to walk in a manner that is worthy of being called sons and daughters of God. I love you, Father. In Jesus' name. So this time, as we have an invitation, I want the believers in the room to ask God to show them the ways in which they are most tempted to work according to the flesh and which antidote that you need to increase in which fruit of the Spirit do you need more of? I want you to do that. Wrestle with God. Pray for God to show you that and to ask him to do that. And then for the person in the room who's not a believer, you cannot walk according to the Spirit unless you're first born of the Spirit. So if God is stirring in your heart and that is, that is where you are, that you need to respond in faith, we invite you to do that this morning as well. And we'll be down here to talk through that if you want to pray. But that's what I want. The believers in the room to ask God to show them where they might grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And if you have not been born of the Spirit, we invite you to surrender to Christ this morning.